Now, we laugh about this in, uh, in our family a lot right now. Our, our, fa- our kids have not been subjected to a lot of commercials in their lives, mostly because we spent, uh, what, when we did watch TV, it was PBS or now Netflix. Um, and so we, we were traveling last summer, and it was one of those where our youngest finally got exposed to commercials. You know, they're watching a TV show, and then the TV show goes away, and another show comes on, and it's a whole bunch of commercials. And, and we're not, we hadn't prepared him sufficiently enough for the onslaught of marketing that was coming his way and what that will do to his psyche. Um, and so the first thing comes on, and what's the initial reaction? I want that. The next one comes on, can we get that? I want that. Can we get the, every single commercial that comes on? I want that. Can we get that? Because we're in hotels where there's cable and there's all this stuff going on. But can I just tell you that, that as cute as that is, and of course you have to you know, talk about, well, we don't need all of that. We don't really even, you have plenty of toys. We don't, that's not something we're going to buy. You know? and, and you talk through all that. Sometimes we think we root that out of our system as we get older. But can I just say we don't really as well as we think we do? It's still there pretty deeply sometimes. I want that. I need that. And so we end up translating that, I think, sometimes to our, our relationship with God. God, give me the desires of my heart. I want fill in the blank. And we really think we, we need it. It's the plan. Obviously, God would see his way forward. And then that doesn't happen. And we're disappointed. God, why didn't you deliver? God, what did I do wrong? Any of those things. But we, we can sometimes inadvertently or advertently blame God for our disappointment, for praying for something that wasn't really a part of the plan wasn't really something that we needed. wasn't really in our best to have it all. And today we're talking about a couple of things. One is the issue of who's in control. When it comes to the world, sure, but when it comes to my life specifically, who's in control? And, and furthermore, part of that is the issue of reverence and fear of the Lord and what that means for who's in control and relinquishing the control to God. And famous part of Proverbs when it starts at the very beginning, Proverbs 1.7, it states, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the beginning of it all. That's where it should come to is who's in control and how are we showing that? It's by fearing the Lord. It's by the reverence we would have for the Lord. And we, in our lives, struggle with this, whether we realize it or not. We struggle and volley back and forth between reverence for self and reverence for God. Sometimes we will view God, whether we realize it or not, as a colleague. Sometimes we view God as an employee, as someone we manage, as someone we can handle. We'll see that in the text today. We, we view God as just a co-worker rather than an all-powerful, the all-knowing, sovereign, desiring our best Lord of the universe. That's who we're supposed to fear, is that God. And we see that in, in 1 Samuel, and we're going to cover 4 through 6 today, but we're only going to narrow down. The part we'll read is, is chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, if you're following along. We discover this, and I'll, I'll try and bring us up to speed and, and summarize some of this so that we're in the world. Israel is unfaithful. 
They've been taken by God and rescued through the exodus, brought through the desert, sustained the whole way, even in their disobedience. Brought into the promised land, crossed the Jordan, they were able to conquer the land by God's guidance, with God's help. That was the only way they were able to do it. It was quite obvious. Now they're in the land that God promised them, settling into that land. And what do they have set up all around them? Worship of idols all around. Yeah, God's in the picture too, but they're, they're, they have idols all around as well and high places where they're worshiping other gods. And their fear is not of the Lord at this point. They really fear the neighboring uh, civilizations. The Philistines particularly rise to the surface right now. The people on the coast. And they take, they take them to, to the battlefield and they go against, in this particular part of 1 Samuel, they go against Phil, the Philistines near the town of Ebenezer and they lose. How could this happen? They wonder. Maybe they think if we just would have brought the Ark of the Covenant, then, then we would have won. So what do they do? They get the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it to Ebenezer, and they fight the Philistines. Now, I'm not going to hinge everything we talk about on the Ark of the Covenant, but let's talk about it for just a moment. You can see an image here uh, in a moment here. Um, most of our impression of the Ark of the Covenant, I, I think it's fair to say, comes from the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That is pretty much it for us. Right? We, we read about it, and it's this giant mystery. Uh, and and uh, helpfully, if you've seen the movie, and you know, I'm going to spoil some things, but it's been out for decades, so it's not my fault at this point, I don't think. But the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the way it's viewed in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is how the Israelites were viewing it. It's a totem. It's a thing that can be controlled. They, the Nazis and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark set it up after finding this artifact. They put this guy in high priest type robes and then they have him open the ark and then all those who are unholy are melted away literally in the movie as this angel of death thing comes out. But here's the thing, they can control it. Even though it seems uncontrollable, all they have to do is box it up again and they can now control it. And then, of course, that really classic final scene of the movie just says it all, that it's one of many things that we can control when they box it up in a wooden box that looks like all the other wooden boxes in a giant government facility where they close it away, not to be discovered among all the other government conspiracy theories that are out there and things that they're hiding from us. It's a fun scene, but, but it just illustrates our misunderstanding of what's going on and Israel's misunderstanding too. Here's something we can control. Here's a way that we can work God to our advantage. But really, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's glory and presence with Israel. Remember, it's a symbol. It was not God's glory and presence. It's just a symbol of that. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, a symbol of God's, uh, a testimony of God's goodness and covenant with the people to draw them into communion with him. And the Israelites misuse this. They think that they can control God with the ark and God shows them how wrong they are. Because they lose when they bring the ark of the covenant to the battlefield at Ebenezer and they lose the ark of the covenant. It goes away. It's taken by the Philistines. And what's a really telling moment of how bad things are in Israel is the birth that happens in the narrative at this point. Last week we talked about Eli the priest and his two sons who were wicked, scoundrels, Phineas and Hophni. Hophni's wife 
goes, uh, both Phineas and Hophni, by the way, die on the battlefield. That's what uh, Eli was told would happen. Eli himself dies when he hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. He falls off his chair and dies. And then Hophni's wife gives birth to a son early. She goes into labor early in her distress and names it Ichabod. None of us want to be named Ichabod. It means no glory. She says, because the glory has been stripped from Israel. She gets it. She sees what's going on. And the legacy lives on in the name of that child. You have an unfaithful people living by their own rules, seeking to use God for their own means. That's the place that we're in. Now, the ark goes to the Philistines, and we heard a little bit of that in our scripture reading from chapter 5 this morning. They, by the end of seven months, wish they had never seen the ark. They think they can control this God too, one among many. I'm going to say Dagon instead of Dagon, which I, either one's probably fine with me. Dagon, uh, that's what I'm used to. And as we heard in chapter 5 this morning, uh, when they put the ark in the temple of Dagon, he falls flat on his face overnight in worship before the Ark of the Covenant. And then those priests of Dagon put him back up in their fear. They're concerned that the same thing will happen again. Dagon probably, by the way, was a fish body and a, a human head and hands. They were sea people. Um, and so he falls over again. The head has fallen off. The hands have fallen off. And it's on the threshold of the door. The threshold in the ancient world was the place where spirits and some gods, they believed, dwelt. And if you stood on the threshold, you had to be careful. But if you stood on it, you could put a little pressure to get what you wanted. Right? So now here you go. All of this has fallen on the threshold. There is no control that Dagon has over anything going on. All the pressure is on them and all the worship is on God at this point. And you can see the Philistines start to have a bit of fear. They start moving it around. They had five principal or chief cities. They start moving it around to those cities thinking they can kind of control it. And each place it goes, there are these tumors. It turns out there are also rats that are, that are coming around too. Uh, scholars speculate that, that they're not sure entirely what the tumors are. That could have been the plague, bubonic plague. Uh, some of the language indicates that perhaps the people were suffering from hemorrhoids as a, as a result of this. Something like that is going on. But everywhere they go, the ark goes, the people suffer. And so finally they ask their own priests, how do we get rid of this and stop the suffering? This is madness. Why are we still holding on to this thing? We've got to get it out of here. So they, they devise this plan that of those five chief cities, they'll make five golden rats and five golden tumors. It's a very interesting way to do it. And, and then they're going to send it back. That's a guilt offering. They send it back to Israel. But if you read carefully, and I challenge you to do this later, to read chapter 6, uh, you'll, you'll find it interesting, and this is a, it, it's an exercise in paying attention to details. Because I read it a couple times, I didn't even catch all the details this week, and I'll just point out a couple to you. In order to get rid of the ark, they set up a test that seems like it's, it's set up for failure for the ark. They take the ark of the, the Lord, they put it on a new cart, they put it on a new cart, unmanned, to be pulled by two cows who have just given birth, two cows who have just given birth who have never been hooked up to a cart before. Now, that's a recipe for disaster because they don't really know what they're doing. They're supposed to learn how to pull things like a yoke or a cart. Plus, they're putting the baby cows that have just, they've given birth to behind them, and so mama cows have maternal instinct and milk that needs to come out soon, and they're going to want to turn around 
to the baby cows. They've never pulled a cart before, and they say, if it goes towards Israel, then we know that it's the Lord's doing, and if not, then it was just a coincidence that all this happened. And what happens? It goes to Israel. That's where it goes. And when it finally gets there, let's read a little bit of the text here. Chapter 6 of Samuel, verses 13 and following. It goes to Beth Shemesh, a Levitical town. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, remember it's been gone for seven months, they lamented that it was gone. They rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. A couple other details we ought to note. They uh, have a good attitude about the return of the ark. They don't know the protocol for sacrifice at this point. Things have gone wrong in Israel. They're in a Levitical city where they should know how to appropriately sacrifice. But what did they do? They sacrificed the girl cows. You only sacrifice the males, only the firstborn. You don't do the females. But I think that God can use this still. And this is where I kind of think we can launch into the, the rest of what we want to say this morning. It's the wrong sacrifice. They should have known better. But it's the right attitude. And that's, God can work with that. That doesn't excuse wrong. I wouldn't begin to suggest that, nor do I think the text suggests that. But you can see the opposite in, let's say, the Pharisees of the New Testament, where they have the wrong attitude, but they have the right practice, right? Here, the right attitude is there, but they can be trained. They can learn, and they begin to learn what it is to follow God again give you a different example, a modern-day example of, of how wrong way to do it, right, uh, right attitude. Um, I have a friend who came to Christ decades ago, and when he came to Christ, he was on a uh, backpacking trip for a couple days with some friends. They came, he came to Christ out on the trail, and they were up high on a peak of a mountain one day in Colorado, and uh, he said, well, I just became a Christian. Don't Christians, like, take communion or something? Shouldn't we do that? And so the three of them uh, talked it over, and they said, well, yeah, I guess that's a great idea. The only thing they had that was suitable for communion were barbecue chips and Pepsi. Wrong way to do it, right attitude, right? I think God can begin to work with that. Now, when we take communion, we're going to use not that this morning, but that disappoints some of you, I'm sure, actually. But I think God can use the right attitude and shape us. I think that matters. I think that's crucial, in fact. Because God rules this world. And God's rule of this world means that God needs to have his way in your life. He needs to rule in our lives as well. And what that means out of us is we need to be humble to actually fear the Lord. And we need to have the right priorities and how to proceed. We can have the attitude in place, but then we need to proceed forward. And what I'm going to suggest to you, um, I've, I've talked before about praying the names and attributes of God, so I'm going to suggest a little bit of that to you this morning. I think it's powerful, and I think it shapes us. And I'm going to pick out three this morning uh, that are worth note as we think about this, and we think specifically about God's sovereignty. That's what these, the three O's of God amount to, and that's what we'll talk about. So the first one I want to talk about is that God is omnipotent. 
We can pray this. In fact, that God is omnipotent, all-powerful. There's nothing outside of the sphere of what God can do. If God wills it, God can do it. If I decide later today that I want to try and fly and I jump off the top of this church building, it's not going to happen, is it? Right? I can will it, but I can't do it. But God can do what God wills. God is not limited by that, like you and I are. That's, in fact, part of what makes God God. And we overstep sometimes uh, when we don't fear God and fear ourselves instead or put, put sovereignty on ourselves and our decision-making and, and our way. Uh, and so we have to actually say I'm sorry to God at some point. Have you ever considered the power of I'm sorry when you do something wrong to seek that forgiveness from somebody? I think it's really telling that if we read this passage of 1 Samuel, the first people to say to send a guilt offering are the people who really don't even fear God at all in the beginning, the Philistines. It's really interesting. They're the ones who say, we've got to figure this out. And they're the ones who haven't lost their perspective on history. Apparently, Israel had. It, it was not that long ago that they left Egypt, a couple generations. It was not that long ago that they entered into the land. And we know that it's on somebody's mind because if you read the text in 4 through 6, you see that part of the reasoning for the, the Philistines sending a guilt offering is not just the relief from tumors, but the fear of something worse from this all-powerful God. They say, we don't want to end up like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They know the history, even when Israel has forgotten. They're the first to say, I'm sorry. Forgive us. Somehow, some way, forgive us from this wrong that we've done. They tried to conquer God. They said, I'm sorry. We have to have a proper perspective that God is all-powerful and we aren't. And have that in priority. And we can pray that. And we can live that because we pray it. So we say, God, you're omnipotent. You're all-powerful. I'm not. Help me understand what it means to rule in my life. I mean, that's simple. Praying that way. Second, God is omnipresent. That is everywhere. Omni meaning just all that's, these are fancy theological terms. God's everywhere. There is nowhere where God isn't. But here's the thing. They had a, a misunderstanding in 1 Samuel about where God was, in a sense. Uh, God was not in the ark, and that's the only place God was. That was just a symbol of God's presence. God was every, everywhere. God was able to be everywhere. Sometimes we hear, even in our own culture, that uh, we try and explain it to kids. Where's God? Oh, God lives at church or something like that, right? Well, yeah, but more than here, right? So people will sometimes say, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do such and so. We're in a church. I shouldn't say that word. We're in a church. Or I'm talking to a pastor or whatever. And, and then the next question is, well, should you do it anywhere then? God is everywhere. God's not limited by time and space like you and I are. You can't be in two places. I can't either. Some of us wish we could. God can't. God is everywhere present omnipresent. But there is a way that we can cut God out of the picture. That's sin. And that's the whole root of what we're talking about, to declare our own sovereignty over God's, to declare fear of ourselves over fear of God. But we recognize that even when that happens, I think this first Samuel passage illustrates this well, even when we try and cut God out of the picture, God will not stand to be controlled by us. It's not going to happen. God won't allow that. And if we want to return, that's the invitation God gives us when we try and declare our own sovereignty over God. The return is a heart. It's that right attitude. It's a heart and life willing to live in God's presence 
under God's authority. And so we can reference something like David, who says it so well in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. He begins, verse 15, which isn't on the screen, but 16 will be. He says, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it, right? The cows weren't going to be enough, even if they were bulls, for the people in 1 Samuel. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. God can work with the attitude in the right place and shape us so that what's inside will, will become what's on the outside. And we can easily, uh, you can see in 1 Samuel, the people had faith in idols. They had faith in false gods and things that aren't real. That's what an idol is. They put their faith somewhere else, and they had this belief that God was limited by time and space, that we could control him, that we could put him where we want. And they lived accordingly. That's how they ordered their lives then. Well, if it seems like God is going to be affected here, then we'll make a sacrifice to that God. But maybe this other God is affecting this, so we'll make a sacrifice to that God. They put their time and energy into different things that benefited them. When the ark returns, they sacrifice. They begin to learn God's desires again. That's the transition that goes on with the right attitude. They still fail a little bit, but they start moving that way. By the end of chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 7, they've made a significant transition. It takes them a while, though. I'll give you an idea of this right attitude, though, working out, where we can shape the behavior. Uh, around our house, we've been working, our oldest is great, but the younger two, uh, we've been working with putting their plates on the counter when they're done with dinner. It's a surprisingly hard thing to learn. Um, and so they're supposed to put it on the right side, where we put all the dishes, the right side of the sink. And what happens finally when somebody brings it in, where do they put it? As far to the left as possible, as close to where they started, basically. Uh, they got it on the counter. We had great success even this weekend. We can work with that, right? That they get it there to the counter. But now let's shape where it goes. Let's shape how the behavior is going to work out. The attitude is there. God is omniscient, is the final one, all-knowing. That is, there's nothing outside. There's no mystery for God out in this world. There's nothing you could say or do that God wouldn't already know. And we put these three together, and I put them together because it, it creates the package of what we understand as the sovereignty of God. That God is all-powerful, God is everywhere, and then God is all-knowing. That equals God's sovereignty, that God can do what God wills because it's God's pleasure to do it. God answers to no one, doesn't need to. We answer to God. And we, we reverse that equation at our own peril, is what we learn here. To put in the words of, of A.W. Tozer, I think he said it well, he said, were there even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down. To be Lord over all the creation, he must possess all knowledge. God is said to be absolutely free because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases, always, everywhere, forever. To be thus free means also that he must possess universal authority. And Tozer goes on to say, who would God answer to anyways? Who would give God's marching orders? No one. God is sovereign. God does what God does at his pleasure, and he has the authority and the right to do it. We don't have that same authority and right. We are to live under the one who has that authority and created us and loves us. 
Living under God's authority is, in fact, the path to life. That's the way forward. To, to do anything else, to move in anything but a Godward direction, is the path actually to death. That's what Scripture continuously teaches us. You can see that evidenced quite clearly and quite physically, actually, in First Samuel, in what we're reading. And if we're going to move in a Godward direction, we need to pray that God's ways become our ways. To destroy in us, this is what we need to pray, those things that would hold us back. Where we declare our own sovereignty, where we declare that God is not in control of that area of my life. We need to hand those things over. An example I, I felt even this weekend. We had a garage sale this weekend. Um, in the past, I, I know that stuff is a thing that, that can get a hold on me. Things. I like things in shiny packages. Um, and, and I do. I, I just, that's what I like. Um, but I'm learning to relinquish those things. I'm a pack rat. I'm trying to get rid of things. My wife is happy about this. We've had a number of garage sales over the years, and it's taken me, each one of those, to be able to release that stuff. The first one, I didn't want to be around it. I was there, but I was kind of absent in many ways. The next one, I was like, okay, I can handle some of this going away. And then yesterday, we had one for, for the past couple of days. My goodness, every bit of thing that went away, I felt freedom. I felt freedom with everything that a person bought. I don't care about the money. I just want to get rid of the stuff. Get out of here. There's too much of it around. And so it is when we start to relinquish those things that hold us back from God. We think that they're good for us, but we relinquish those things and we actually feel freedom to live under the sovereignty and control of God. The people in 1 Samuel of Israel didn't quite get it because even when they get to Ark back, they think they can... Uh, still micromanage God a little bit and control him. And they misuse the ark still, and a whole lot of them uh, suffer the consequences. Finally, finally, by the end of chapter 6, Samuel comes and he says, Are you guys ready to get rid of your idols? Do you see what's happening to you? They break all the idols. They knock down the altars. And they say, We're ready. Right? It's, it's a process. It takes time, but the right attitude makes all the difference in getting to that point. The people, when they started, they feared the Philistines. They didn't fear God, and the effects were clear. And, and the question is, who was in control? And the question comes to us then, who's in control, not just of the world, but in my life? Is it God? Is it me? Is it other stuff? Is it things? What, what is it? What's in control? Is it my schedule? Work? In the, the New Testament, in 1 Peter, we get a glimpse that the message is the same throughout Scripture of our need to fear the Lord and put things in perspective and priority. Because sometimes things will go wrong in the world if we're following Christ. Sometimes things won't look right. Sometimes things will push down on us. Peter writes to a people who are suffering persecution. They're oppressed because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same basic advice is given to them as Samuel gives to the Israelites in 1 Samuel 6 and 7. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That's the way to life. That's the way to freedom. Is to revere, that is to fear Christ as Lord, our authority, our way forward. Warren Wearsby commenting on this, we'll round it out with this. He says, when Jesus Christ is Lord, that is that authority, the future is your friend. And you can walk through each day confident in his presence and his help. Would that be the case with us, that we'd make Jesus Christ our Lord and authority in our lives?
Let's pray. God, you're omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. You're all-powerful. You could do anything you will, and you do it at your pleasure. You're everywhere. There's nowhere we can go that's outside of your presence. And when we do try and step outside of your presence, you've given us the invitation back. Thank you for that. There's nothing you don't know about us. Anything we could try and hide or withhold from you, God, you already know. So today we ask for forgiveness where we need it. We ask for release from those things that take us on the path of death rather than life. We ask for redemption for those very things that keep us in bondage to sin, that we can have the redemption of your son, Jesus Christ, and experience what real freedom is like, what real life is like. Father, grant us life, grant us entrance into your kingdom if we have a willing spirit, if we are ready to follow you. Be with us today. Amen.